welcome everyone and thank you for taking the next hour or so to join us in a conversation about the crisis with youth and mental health and ecclesial crisis, the social crisis that we'll be talking about for the next hour or hour and 15 minutes today. If this is your first time attending a Conversations That Matter, welcome. Conversations That Matter is a, is an initiative of the McGrath Institute for Church Life that really takes up timely issues of social and ecclesial importance. And to host our webinar today, we have with us my wonderful colleague, Beth Lapsey, who directs our FIAT program on faith and mental health. Beth, I'll pass things over to you. Thank you, Jess, and thanks to all of you for joining us today. As Jess mentioned, today's webinar speaks to the topic of youth mental health and specifically how we can support belonging and hope in what's been described as a real age of loneliness for young people. So friends, in recent years, we've witnessed rising rates of anxiety, of depression, and of other forms of mental illness among both children and teens. So much so that in 2021, the U.S. Surgeon General issued an advisory on the crisis of youth mental health. And the present crisis has left so many of us wondering how best we can care for and support young people. So to this end, we brought together four outstanding panels, each with a wealth of expertise in their care for young people as ministers, as counselors, and as educators and school administrators. So our four panelists today will support us in thinking about and seeking a better understanding of this crisis of youth mental health, and then speaking very practically to how each of us can better care for those young persons who are entrusted to us. So today we'll have 75 minutes. We'll begin by posing a few questions to our panelists. We invite you while listening to submit any questions over the live Q&A, and then we'll reserve the final 15 to 20 minutes to address those questions that come in over the q and I'll begin by introducing our panelists, and I'll keep my introductions relatively short because you can read their full bios online. So, Pat and Kenema Lay bring their love for people and for the church to their work in supporting mental health, faith, families, and youth. Kenna is a licensed marriage and family therapist, and Pat is a speaker, musician, leader, and former parish youth minister. They recently together co-founded the Martin Center for Integration, an organization that supports the integration of mental health and faith. And they host a great podcast, which I recommend, called This Whole Life. Maribel Rodriguez-Laguna is a licensed professional counselor supervisor in beautiful Dallas, Texas, where she's also the founder and owner of Corsacrum Counseling and Consulting. Maribel is the past board president of the Catholic Psychotherapy Association, and Maribel specializes in premarital preparation, marital counseling, and vocational discernments, working closely with diocesan vocational leaders. Finally, Ryan Dainty is Dean of Student Formation at Marion High School, located right here in the Diocese of Fort Wayne, South Bend, Indiana. Ryan has been in this position for the past 10 years, but prior to that, had worked as an educator and he still continues to teach theology courses, including one on the dignity and vocation of men for Marion High School students. Ryan's developed an important outreach ministry 
the Marian Parent Speaker Series, which focuses on monthly topics relevant to the parenting of teenagers in today's world, something I think we can all use support with. So thank you for being with us to our four panelists. And with that, I'd like to get us started with an initial question. As I named before, in 2021, the U.S. Surgeon General issued an advisory on the crisis of youth mental health. So how can we begin to understand this crisis? In other words, how do we make sense of the current state of youth mental health? And what are some factors that have perhaps contributed to the crisis that we're now seeing? I'd like to have time for each of our panelists to address this question, but Maribel, perhaps you could get us started speaking from your respective role as a therapist who's worked with children, teens, and adults. Thank you so much for having me. One of the things that I've been reflecting on is that this mental health crisis really is a long time coming, and the pandemic has just accelerated things for us. And so we were already brooding, right, with these mental health issues. And then when everything shut down and people had to be alone and sitting with their thoughts, teenagers in particular were disconnected from great support systems, from sports. They were disconnected from youth group. They were disconnected from school, their friends. And then I think that just accelerated things. It was just throwing gasoline into a fire that had already started. And then on top of that, I think the overuse of technology as a way of coping has just contributed to the ongoing loneliness. And so we're raising this generation that doesn't really know how to tolerate discomfort because they're very comfortable in escaping with through the use of technology and other means. And so we really think that, or I really think that we need to focus on connection, on relationship building. And it needs to start at home. It really needs to start in the domestic church. Maribel, thank you. And just to tease out a few threads from what you named, one is this fact that as people were really impacted by our environments. So you're naming the fact that what we've lived through as an uh, across the globe, not just in the U.S. with the COVID pandemic, that's had a real impact. But there were certain elements of environmental shifts in terms of how young people are living today in maybe a more isolated or individualized way that impacts them. And you said that they, we as people have a fundamental need for connection. It's interesting. We've seen of late just rising focus on the experience of loneliness, not only among young people, but among adults. So naming that has a role to play. And then finally, the role of technology, which sometimes fostered connection, but not necessarily full connection of knowing and being known. Yeah. Now, Ryan, you come from the domain of working in the nitty gritty in and out of a school system. So you care for students, you care for staff, you care for their parents. I'm wondering if you could offer some thoughts from that role, you know, what you've witnessed in terms of the mental health of the young people that you care for. Sure. Thank you very much for having me here. And thanks to all in attendance and to my co-panelists. Yeah. So one of the big things that I've noticed, I like that Maribel mentioned, like this is something that's been brooding for a while. I think it's important just as we get started here in this conversation, we'll be speaking, I'm sure, in a lot of uh, generalities. 
but about things that are very particular to people and manifest themselves in very particular ways in terms of factors, influence, um, perhaps even severity of, of illness. And I think what we see is we may speak a lot about the kind of everyday struggles, especially in a school that I see the everyday struggles of young people um, to develop things like healthy coping strategies, good problem solving skills, grit, resilience, you know, having to work through trauma for relationships. But we see that line between just perhaps poor mental health and actually mental illness is an increasingly thin line. And that's something that we acknowledge that for many, that's a life and death battle. And so to school, what we are able to do is try to provide a network of support for families and to engage them as partners in providing the support that they need to care for their students. That being said, I think one of the, the biggest thing that I see ultimately, I think, comes down to and revolves around the way that students cope with stress and pressure. And I think this pressure comes from a variety of places. And as Maribel mentioned, they're not comfortable with discomfort. And so they tend to um, just cope with it poorly. Um, I think first and foremost, um, one of the first places this pressure can come from, and we see this at a high school, that's a college preparatory high school, is, is from parents who are kind of driving their kids to be successful, to find a, a good job, to get themselves into a good college, a good major program that's going to set them up for the rest of their life. And I mean, that's a lot to put on a, a 16 to 18 year old who is just trying to figure out who they are, never mind what they want to be. And so it also can come from coaches, teachers, and just add that looming uncertainty of the future. Those are all things, I think, factors that play in here. And it is, as Beth, as you mentioned, it's exacerbated by that powerful new parent, the smartphone, which I recently had some of my students do an assignment where they had to chart their, their social media use. And they, they clearly spend more time on their phones than they do with their own parents. And so it's not ri ridiculous to say that is a, a type of parent. Another thing that we see at the school level um, is in terms of like, I don't, I, I can use the word bullying. I mean, that has a very specific definition, but just people who are just not nice, right? Sort of not nice human behavior gets magnified, especially in the age of technology where a kid cannot just go home and unplug and turn off the bullying and, and the behaviors like that. But social media sort of enables constant 24-7 around the clock, inescapable reality for these students. So there's no way out for a lot of these young people from that constant scrutiny and then therefore no real place for recollection of themselves. Their selves are really just a bunch of data points out there for someone else to see, someone else to judge. I remember sitting at a volleyball game. My daughter is a freshman at Marion where I work and she, I was at a volleyball game. I don't remember what team was playing, but a player made a, a poor hit. And the second that she realized that she is almost like she turned around and was like looking around to see like, who saw that? Who saw me mess up? Because they're just, they're so, their whole lives are sort of broadcast. At least that's the, that's the mentality that they're developing. And she was overly self-conscious. She was very embarrassed. And I think that just speaks to some of this culture, especially with regards to technology that is threatening kind of the young people and their sense of self. And then the last thing that I would say kind of in, in this first pass here would be, I'm also noticed in the school, the fallout from a lack of boundaries with students and whether that is from parents, you know, with devices like the phone or whether that's from a lack of supervision in the school because there's X number of kids and there's only so many adults, whatever that is, students, I think, have started to lose a sense of what is appropriate 
And I think they see that, of course, on social media and things like that. So without healthy boundaries, without a sense of, of what is appropriate, their behavior can often s- kind of skew towards, I'm going to manipulate the situation to get whatever I want in that moment. And if I don't get what I want, then the result is this anxiety. And that becomes a really vicious cycle of just behavior that kind of produces anxiety. And how do we help break them from that cycle? I think those are just a few observations in in the first pass here that I see in our school. And Ryan, thank you for also naming at the outset that attentiveness to the particular. And that is something that we're sensitive to in our conversation today, that we are speaking to some extent in generalities about experiences of mental illness and mental health. And yet each person is unique. And as folks of faith, we can say each person is made in God's image and likeness. And that should never be occluded by one's experience of suffering. You know, we always have to recognize and uphold the innate goodness of that person. Um, But so I hope that we can continue to kind of just threading that needle between the particular and the general today as we're thinking about concerns of youth mental health and how we care for young people. So let's volley it over to Pat and Kenna. You two are unique in that you you form this dynamic team and have founded a beautiful organization. Pat, you come from the background of ministry. Kenna, you come from and continue to live out this role as a marriage and family therapist. So how might you help us to make sense of this current crisis of youth mental health? Yeah, so I'm thinking about what we're seeing in our clinic particularly in children and in youth. And it is an overwhelming presence of anxiety, OCD, scrupulosity. You know, we are a um, explicitly Catholic clinic. And so already our clientele, you know, comes from the Orthodox church going, you know, quote, rule following families. And, And we see in these children a generation of within themselves this emotional generation of concern of, am I good? Am I doing it right? Am I worthy? Am I safe? And so I'm thinking about how we can understand what it's like to be a 10-year-old in this day and age with a lot of voices, a lot of messages coming at us. We've talked a bit about technology. We've talked about, you know, social groups, coaches, parents, siblings even. But just thinking about what that must be like to have this kind of swirl, maybe even cacophony of incongruent messages, perhaps, that we're receiving as we try as an adolescent to grapple with this question of who am I? What is my worth? And where does my worth come from in particular? So so that's kind of just as a marriage and family therapist, you know, even if I'm working with one person on my couch, I'm always thinking of them in this greater context. And so I offer that to us today to consider, you know, especially for those of us who maybe attended today with a particular youth in mind, what are the voices that I know of? How might I better understand what some of those influences and messages are for them just to hold that? So, okay, so if there's not this congruence of messages, right? So perhaps the culture at large, which they're ingesting through social media and just through media use through peers perhaps is in conflict with maybe the values that they hear at home or at church like that's okay that's life and this is good practice for navigating that through life but i think the thing that in particular has contributed to 
this epidemic that we're talking about today is the lack of space, the lack of tolerance, Ryan and Maribel referenced, for grappling with that, for, for sitting with the discomfort that the answer isn't easy or listening to my conscience, doing what, following through on the unpopular and yet the thing that resonates with me, like that's not easy. And I don't want to scapegoat technology as the only bad guy in the room, but this, this instant gratification world that youth have grown up in has made the space between stimulus and response almost non-existent. And so the stimulus, right, all these messages coming in, these prompts to, to act, to respond in a particular way, we need that space. As people of faith, I would say that space is where the Holy Spirit enters, right? That space is where the voice of God says to us, like, this is what you are made for. And without that space, I mean, those human voices, those instantly present, very loud, colorful, attractive voices, they're going to win out. And so, you know, what are we seeing in our clinic is that kids and their parents, their families, their caregivers need skills to increase that space, to tolerate greater discomfort. And I think we can talk later about some practical things we can all be doing um, to stretch that muscle that has really atrophied in the pandemic when there was so much reliance on technology and life was just, you know, groceries in a snap, friends in a snap, so much entertainment and comfort was available at our fingertips. I think one of the things that I've recognized through a lot of discussions around youth mental health and especially in this conversation today, which is so helpful having kind of this diverse uh, set of backgrounds to approach it is you know, I spent 15 years in youth ministry from 2006 to 2021. And there were a lot of things that changed in 15 years. But one of them was the the ease of taking the easy way out instead of the better way among young people. And that's not to accuse them of being lazy. I think they are the products of families and a culture. And at times, even our own church, who is you know, parishes and ministries might take the easy way out instead of things that are better. You know, technology again comes up for me that I can't tell you how many high schoolers would, you know, champion the grand cause of social media by trying to convince me that it fosters greater connection. And sure, on one hand, we have more surface level connection than we've ever had in society in, in human history, but we are incarnate bodily persons and we are made to be in communion with one another in a physical way as well and any honest child will tell you that facetiming grandma and grandpa is not the same thing as giving grandma and grandpa a hug you know there's a time and a place for facetime by all means please facetime your grandparents but it's just different it's not the same i can't tell you how many you know young boys in particular will trade the version of greatness that historically has been associated with using their God-given faculties for excellence, whether that's academic, athletic, and other kind of more creative, recreative ways like that, and channeled that merely into video games now, that they've exchanged the more difficult thing for an easier, more accessible thing. So it doesn't matter if I am excelling in these ways that are more in touch with my genuine humanity. As long as I'm the best Fortnite player among my friends, that's a form of excellence that I'm comfortable with, you know? And even in true human relationships, you know, the statistics are pretty jarring now about 
the percentage of teens that will Google a question about really important personal topics like sex and love and relationships and morality. They'll Google that question rather than asking their parents or youth minister or campus minister or pastor. It's so much easier to go to Google. And as a test, I have Googled some of the questions that a high schooler may ask. And the first five hits are from maybe the top five organizations in the world that I don't want giving our teenagers answers to these life or death questions, you know. And then you take that to the spiritual realm where for all of us, not youth, adults, everyone in between, it is easier to not pray. It's easier to not go to confession, to not go to mass every Sunday without fail. It is easier to try to do things on my own. And it also is far more painful and destructive, but it's not always immediately destructive. So I, I don't receive oftentimes this immediate corrective that, you know, during the pandemic, when we most places were not obligated to go to mass for months, years even, I think my fear that has kind of come to fruition for a lot of us is people started realizing, hey, it's Monday morning. I didn't go to mass yesterday. I'm still here. I'm doing just fine. And the reality is over time, a lack of connection with the Lord has very cumulative effects in our life that I think are also a cause of some of the mental health struggles that we're seeing. So I think we as a church have a grand responsibility to, to help create environments where we can foster deep connection and at times difficult connection between people and God, between people and one another, and really help youth to see their ability to do hard things and also to help them develop the skills to do hard things. So I'd like to, oh, I'm sorry. Go for it, Ryan. Yeah. Yeah. Just to jump in there, I, I really, that increasing that space between stimulus and response is really important. And I think that, and, you, and we also, why just are students turning to these easier routes, right? Or, or young people turning to these easy things to, you know, as an alternative to being by themselves or being isolated. Um, and, and those are kind of surface things. I actually think a big direction to, to try to lead young people into is actually loneliness in, in a weird way. It's, it's the remedy as well, but, but in a way that is positive as a space for authentic leisure, authentic rest, real recollection. I, I, I just recall, and I, and I share this with my students constantly. I, I recall hearing something, I think it was on a Science Friday, NPR, something or other, probably 10 years ago. And someone said, if we don't teach young people how to be lonely, the, uh, the only thing they'll ever be is alone. And how do we actually help them to engage with like loneliness and boredom and solitude as things that are wholly positive and kind of create and carve out spaces for meaningful leisure, meaningful rest, for doing nothing and actually have that be something that is satisfactory. When I ask students what they do when they're for downtime, they say, look, I'm on my phone. And I'm like, how do you feel after two hours on your phone? They're like, not great. And I'm like, so that was not really good rest for you, was it? Like, like, no, I guess not. And, you know, then I, you know, heaven forbid, I, I play classical music in the classroom and they're all like ready to fall asleep. And they're like, this is so boring. And I'm like, how many of you struggle to sleep at night? And they all raise their hand. And I'm like, so now you guys are sleepy. I'm helping you, you know. So yeah, I think meaningful leisure, meaningful rest, loneliness in some ways as part of the, in an authentic sense, as part of the solution here, because it's only in those spaces where there's that kind of elongated space between stimulus and responses, as Kenneth said, that 
we can really discover our true self and, and find ourselves to be of, of real value. So just a couple of things to, to piggyback there. Thanks, Ryan. And I might add to that, I think there are some conditions that we need in order to have what you describe as that authentic loneliness or authentic rest. I think actually we need a community of support and some experience of connection because loneliness can also be um, just a profound risk factor for further development of mental illness and for those with mental illness, a worsening of symptoms. And so kind of teasing out like, I can be lonely in terms of like, I can be alone and quiet and feel some discomfort there. But I also know that there's a communion that awaits me and that there's connection outside of that. So it seems like teasing out is important. I also wanted to go back to something that you had said about the importance of prayer and of faith and community. And I notice when we are visiting with young people, when we're visiting with ministers, sometimes when we bring that up, we get the feedback of, well, it sounds like you're saying just pray it away. And I get the sense that's not what you're saying, but rather how do we uplift prayer as a resource? And this involves recognizing the reality of mental illness, that as people were integrated, we've got emotions, bodies, an intellect, meaning, you know, our, our kind of thoughts and, and a soul. And so to take care of ourselves involves oftentimes seeking good psychotherapeutic care, which Kenna and Maribel provide. And it involves also drawing on the resources of faith. And there's a good body of work that just highlights the importance of faith to um, folks managing symptoms of mental illness. David Rossman is a wonderful scholar who's dedicated his career to this and highlights the importance of faith and faith communities. And we find when we tease out some of the why from a purely scientific standpoint, that it points back to connection with God provides support in the midst of suffering with sustaining beliefs, sustaining hope, this sense of there's a presence with me, even when I feel isolated and alone, a presence of love. And the second is that the community of faith itself is meant to provide that connection and that support so that we indeed are not suffering alone. So I think those are actually two really important takeaways for folks on our call. I don't want to belabor my role as a, as a host for this and overspeak. But I do want to press back on one other thing. We've been talking a lot around the importance of environment, all these different cultural environmental factors. So stress, the role of technology, the lack of space. But we haven't yet talked about our vulnerability to mental illness, which is also genetic, which is also biological. So when we within our FIAT program of faith and mental health are speaking to our vulnerability to mental illness as a people, we say, well, it's a number of factors that come together. We have genetic predispositions, certain elements of our biology, environmental stress, which is everything that we've described, and developmental experiences can all press into our vulnerability and contribute to an experience of mental illness. And so 
I think it's important to recognize that mental illness isn't reducible to any one of those factors in terms of direct cause and effect. And curious if any of our speakers would be interested in speaking a bit more to that and even to experiences of serious mental illness. We've spoken a lot about anxiety and depression, but we haven't so much addressed other experiences of mental illness as well. Yeah, no, I appreciate you highlighting that, Beth, and kind of broadening our lens for this conversation and for this consideration. And particularly, you know, when we are working with six, seven, eight-year-olds who um, are coming to us with some really debilitating symptoms, they, you know, aren't able to attend school, they aren't able to get through an entire school day in a way that we would expect that we would say is developmentally appropriate and normative, we are absolutely considering what are some of those other factors that might be at play here. And so I think that reality, you know, particularly as we're talking to parents or talking to the caregivers, that reality that we're drawing from a lot of buckets to get this particular constellation of of symptoms and functioning can be can be frustrating. It, It can be overwhelming because then it feels like okay, we've got to put energy in a lot of different directions then. There's not just one lane that I can focus on. And so just that, yeah, maybe a word of encouragement that while many factors pour into the bucket, let's say, of that symptomology, working even in one direction can alleviate and and can start to loosen up and make more manageable some of the other contributing factors as well. You know, we had our pre- pre-webinar conversation a couple of weeks ago. And one of the other panelists had brought up this idea of, I don't know, I don't want to use the word relative functioning, but this awareness of that uniqueness of the person and that flourishing and functioning for one, particularly as I'm thinking about our own seven kids, that one isn't going to look like all of the others. And so how can we bring a word of hope and support to maybe one youth who is struggling as they are certainly doing the comparison game? of letting them really be aware of God's unique call for them. Like, I think that's a role that we as adults can have in the lives of youth. Yeah, that strikes me as especially important because mental illness in terms of its impact on the person, it's also often described as a spectrum in terms of how much it impacts us. So one's experience of depression might be more or less severe than another's. And it's because of this constellation of factors that contributes to that. And Maribel, I'm I'm curious if there's anything that you might add in just helping us uh, attend more deeply to experiences of serious mental illness among young people. Sure. When we assess clients to kind of figure out where these mental health issues are coming from, we look both at risk factors and protective factors. There's the risk factors, obviously. We have genetics, we have environment, et cetera. Our faith, you know, I think we're at high risk for OCD, for example, um, you know, because we have very clear rules about what we believe. And so these risk factors, some are very predictable. You know, it's like one plus one equals two or one plus one is at least correlated to two. But one of the risk factors that we cannot account for are the surprises of life and the curveballs of life. And it's like as maybe adults, we've tried to do everything right for our kids and do things well so that they're set up. But sometimes life throws you a curveball and that puts that youth at risk for mental health um, illness, even though there are so many protective factors. But also on the other side of the coin, you know, we can 
Um, obviously, turn to medicine to help to therapy. Great stats on the effectiveness of that, especially when they're paired together. But in healing, we also have to anticipate surprises, the surprises of God's healing working in random ways. And so I think that can only come through that space that we're creating that some of the other panelists have referred to, that space of faith, that space of reflection, that space of leisure, that space of really prioritizing us. You know, St. Thomas references the pleasure emotions. And in that space is where we're surprised by these kind of unanticipated healings that can occur. And so I think that we, in our American society, we're so exact, we're so ordered, we're so efficient, we're workaholics, and we don't give enough credit to curveballs and surprises. Thank you, Maribel. It's interesting to hear you reflect on that in your role as a therapist, that certainly I, you know, as a therapist, you follow evidence-based protocols in terms of how to support someone who's experiencing mental illness. And then at once, like the unity of faith and science together points that we can experience relief, increased freedom, greater ability to manage symptoms, decrease in symptoms in different ways. With that, I think it's helpful to take a practical turn in our conversation today. So many of those folks tuned in today to today's session are educators, parents, ministers. And so let's speak to our listeners. How do we best care for a young person who's maybe experiencing symptoms of mental illness in our respective settings? Um, and so with that, perhaps, Maribel, would you again just get us started? Uh, what advice might you have for our listeners? I am a nerd at heart. <laughs> so I think it all starts with education and just talking about the uncomfortable. And so if we can catch mental health illness early on because we're educating parents, youth ministers, priests on how to identify red flags of mental Ill illness. I think that can go a really long way. I do think I'm bilingual. And so I tell, tease people that I'm tricultural now, but I think that especially in the Hispanic community, in the Spanish speaking community, there's a great need for psychoeducation of mental illness. And we as a church have done a very poor job of that. And that needs to change because the church in America is changing. And so that means that we need to attend to the entire church and the entire church needs education on what this is and how it's affecting our young people. And so we're also dealing with a particular, you know, cultural difference in that these first generation American kids, they might know about mental illness, but their parents might not. And so that discrepancy in the family really affects their ability to help that teen heal. And so if we can attend to those cultural differences, even within a family. I think we really can go a long way. So I would say in summary, education. And it strikes me, this has been one of our efforts at McGrath is at the McGrath Institute has been to support parishes in providing that good education because it, churches oftentimes remain a first place, especially for our immigrant communities um, to come and in a place that is trustworthy. So how do we talk about 
mental illness and the reality of psychological and spiritual wounds in a way that doesn't fall into false, false categories, saying our faith has nothing to say um, or that science has nothing to say, but that this is a reality that needs to be addressed through the resources of both faith and science. Yeah. Well, Ryan, volleying back to you as an educator and someone who's based in the schools, I'm curious as to the advice that you might have for parents, for teachers, for others supporting young people. Yeah, as, and as you uh, pointed to earlier when I made the comment on loneliness, that can certainly be a threat, right? I mean, the importance of communities, of a strong community, uh, a network of, I use the, the language of just a network of support, but that's very vital. And that's what we seek to create in the school. And ultimately, it, it maybe challenges us to think about school in a little bit different way and to talk first and foremost about mission and culture rather than just the outputs and the outcomes in education, graduation rates, dual credits, you know, all of those things are great, uh, but it's culture and mission that I think will ultimately help provide the network of support for the students. And so a couple of things that I just know from my own work and have seen, first and foremost, let's talk with the, the main points of contact for the students or the adults in the building. And we're adults. And we're professionals and we're there for the kids, but we admittedly have our own stuff, right? And so how do we as a school establish a culture where adults feel supported, where they have the space and opportunity to recollect themselves so that they can remain truly present to and their dealings with students and also detached, right? And, and not in the sense where they take something personal or, you know, I, I can think of, you know, I'm sure that, I mean, there we have teachers in the building who were bullied when they were in high school and now they're back in a high school setting and they're faced with a bully in the classroom. Like, what does that bring up for them? And, and how do we as a school support them and sort of maybe working through some of their own, perhaps uh, things that they have to process and, and deal with. And obviously too, if we would ever, you know, encounter more, more serious mental illness, what are the network of support we have for staff? So really relationship building with staff, especially as an administrator is, is very vital knowing your staff. I think it's just a very simple thing. You know, we have staff members, you know, who have gone through, you know, grief or trauma and knowing anniversaries of, you know, deaths or loss or things like that. So that you can be aware and, and responsive or even just be proactive in, in caring for a staff member who may be going through something. What are, you know, outside of just like the, at a Catholic high school, the faculty retreat that everyone has to go on. What are the opportunities for kind of staff and human form or human and spiritual formation that is, I think, that they can opt into so that it's not something that they're kind of required to do. But again, creating those spaces where they feel that they have a sense of, of control of their own growth and, and ongoing formation. I think those are some really important things on the adult side. On the student side, I think kind of from a practical level, from policy and programming, we have a student intervention team that is tasked with kind of everything from students who are, are struggling with academically to students who might be, we might have concerns for drug use or substance abuse, or they're in an unhealthy relationship, or they're struggling with mental health or mental illness. How do we, you know, and it's all designed to get people in conversation and then kind of from that kind of core group, go out into the school community and find those touchstones, those relational touchstones that, you know, to sort of create that network of support for the student and then follow through with kind of a plan of intervention to help that student in whatever is going to come up on the day to day. So we have a full counseling staff at our school. We have teachers. I also think, you know, and this is maybe a side note back to faculty and staff, 
I think hiring for mission is really important. You know, we tell our teachers like, you're, we're hiring you to be a minister and someone who, who just loves kids uh, and cares for them. I and mean, you will also teach chemistry, you'll also teach maths. But first and foremost, we want to hire for that mission. At our school, we actually have a, a pretty an interesting cell phone policy where we don't let our kids have their cell phones during the day. And we're not a one-to-one school, so we don't give them a device. Um, and so we have certain trappings where you can have approval to, to have it for an academic purpose. But also, so I think that's meaningful because we sort of encourage students to have conversations with one another, just built into the very fabric of how we do school. You know, I think the arts and also increasingly in the sort of college prep world of Catholic education, been cre- looking at sort of career and technical education for students through trades programs and things like that to, because again, that's such a, an authentically human way of problem solving and of experiencing the world and it, you know, good work. And so helping those students to kind of have those opportunities, those are all areas where we would seek to kind of, again, provide sort of, here's the student saying, this is sort of who I am. This is what I need, what I struggle with, what can you do to help me? And then this is us trying to sort of create that network of support where they can really thrive and flourish. As you mentioned, Beth, we also think of parents. I think it was Christian Smith's research, with them, which I'm sure many of us may be familiar with. It said that parents are the number one factor in determining whether students or whether their children stay close to the faith or not. And that's both, on the one hand, terrifying, right? Um, but on the other hand, it's somewhat empowering because as a parent, especially of a teenager who it, it's easy to think my kid doesn't listen to me, I've already lost the ability to influence them. The reality is that they're looking at us and they're looking to us all the time. Um, and so we have a great uh, role there. So at our school, we tried to reach out to parents and say, what are the topics? What are the areas where you guys want to have conversation and seek, you know, deepening kind of education? And so we've talked about this very thing. We've talked about mental health. We've talked about social media. We've talked about things like pornography. We've talked about accompanying young people as they question things around gender and sexuality. We talked about, we've talked about with parents what it means to, what does the prayer life look like in the home, the sort of spiritual life of the family. And so those are all some things that we have kind of created in this network of support as we try to partner with parents to, to do this work. And those are just a couple of things that, to, that, that we do at Marion in particular. And, and I think we've seen generally it's been well received. I think our parents know that we care about their kids and that we're there for them as well. And I think that's an important thing as a school to be able to say to to your stakeholders. Ryan, thank you. I find it really encouraging to hear about the holistic approach that you all take. And I find myself doing somewhat of a mental map as you're describing these things, ta- thinking through the cultural environmental factors that we named at the beginning of the conversation around technology, lack of connectedness, even the challenge of having real conversations. I hear young people saying, I I feel so uncomfortable even trying to start a conversation with someone. So I just go to my phone and ways that you map out those different elements and then think about how do we, through our school culture, address this and foster a culture that kind of supports youth mental health well, at once, prioritizing means of those direct interventions to provide more intensive care and support to students who are experiencing mental illness. Lots to think about. Pat and Kenna would love to hear from the two of you in terms of the advice that you would have for those caring for young people. Thanks. I, I think of a couple of weeks ago, we were working with a group of Catholic school 
staff members and other catechetical leaders in a diocese and training around mental health and faith. And one of the folks asked a question that was just really beautiful and heartfelt, and I think probably captures a lot of the struggle that we have with young people struggling with mental illness. She was a a teacher of younger children, I think pre-K or kindergarten maybe, and she was seeing just early signs of mental illness, possibly maybe even significant trauma in the lives of her students that she hadn't seen, you know, 20 years ago. And she asked a question about how to deal with complex trauma in the life of a student that comes to her school. And it was an interesting opportunity for both of us, and I think all of us in the room, to to wrestle with this question of like, what is my responsibility as a minister, a teacher, a, a Catholic leader, a parent? And at what point do I hit the end of my abilities, my training, and what would be helpful and appropriate and even safe to offer in terms of assistance to somebody? So one of the things that we've talked about with folks is this kind of three-tiered understanding of how to assess and respond to mental health concerns that we see in young people that we work with. And that was something that I did, you know, almost on a weekly basis, just kind of internally with certain youth and youth ministry settings. And I think it's really helpful to have a practical system like this, or at least something to start with, because I think without any practical framework, anyone in ministry runs the risk of going to two dangerous extremes. One of the extremes is I'm going to do nothing to respond to the mental health of my youth because I don't even know where to start. And I'm afraid that if I say one word, even that one word might be the wrong word and it might push someone in a harmful direction. Or the other extreme is I don't know where the framework is, so I don't understand my limits and boundaries. So I'm going to over and I'm going to act like a therapist when I am a youth minister. And I'm not just a youth minister in the sense that is a lesser calling in any way. What it means is I have certain skills and training and I lack other skills and training. And it would be unethical and possibly really dangerous for me to act like a therapist for my young people, for their well-being, and frankly, for my own well-being as a minister, that if I overextend myself, I can very easily lose a sense of my own identity, of my connection to my wife and children, to my other social responsibilities. I might make myself a worse minister if I lose a sense of boundaries. So there's this kind of three-tiered process. The most severe level of this assessment would be someone who is what we would call a mental health emergency. So a young person who is an imminent threat to themselves or others, not only do they have what we might see as significant mental illness going on in their life and in their environment, but there is an imminent threat. So somebody who lays out for someone in ministry or a school setting, I am having these suicidal thoughts, suicidal ideation, and I have a plan, I have a timeline, I know what I'm going to do and when I'm going to do it. That is an immediate 911 call, no questions asked. There there have to be uh, medical and mental health authorities that get involved with those kinds of cases immediately. And if they're not physically with us at the school or the parish, then we have to find a way to get them the help that they need wherever they are. So clarifying location, making sure that the authorities and also their parents or guardians are aware of what's happening to make sure that they are safe, even safe from themselves, right? 
Um, so that's a really good thing, just proactively as ministers and leaders to come up with a list of, all right, what are the crisis hotlines? Obviously, 911, if all else fails, is a great place to start. But what are the numbers that I can call or the groups that I can get in contact with when there's an emergency? The second level would be a mental health crisis, and it would be something like a young person who has a significant mental health struggle in their life that is affecting multiple different parts of their life. They, they are not functioning at a developmentally appropriate level or the way that we have known them in the past in various parts of their life, but they're not an imminent threat to themselves or others. So there's no timely risk of harm to anyone. But as a minister, I may see, all right, this youth has been very social, very connected to their family. Their grades have been not perfect, but fine. And all of a sudden, they're pulling away from friends. They're, they've been removed from the volleyball team because they missed too many practices. Their grades are slipping, and they just don't seem like themselves around the parish. That's a circumstance where it's helpful for us to take the response of getting them connected with good mental health professionals letting their parents know, making sure that whoever is their guardian is aware of what's happening, but giving them really good resources to connect with. And again, the proactive thing to do there is to come up with a list of great therapists or counselors in my area or in my state that I can present to parents and say, these are great folks, and I trust that you'll get good care. And just the minor caveat that they may not all be Catholic therapists. I think Someone like Maribel, or if I can be very biased, Kenna, are great Catholic clinicians out there. That is probably best case scenario. But there are phenomenal clinicians who are not professed Catholics or even Christians, but will respect and support the faith of all of their clients and help them to become mentally healthy, regardless of their faith background. So it's a really good thing. And, and I would say for anyone who's maybe in a more rural part of your state, it's really helpful now that we do have some of the great results of technology to consider the resources that might be available in your state, but not in your specific area. Uh, a lot of mental health licensures will cover anyone literally in the state of Texas, California, New York. So someone who lives in rural Texas, three hours from any major city, could do teletherapy with a great Catholic therapist. Someone who lives where we are in Minnesota, up on the Canadian border, does not have a lot of great resources up there, but they may be able to do telehealth with one of our clinicians in the Twin Cities. So that mental health crisis is the second level. The lowest level, a mental health struggle in our young people, is where we as ministers get to shine because that is what we are absolutely equipped to do. So somebody who is experiencing feelings of depression, anxiety, stress, shame, confusion about themselves or the world, that's where we can do really great work in praying with them, in pointing them to connection with God, in helping to create connections between this person and their parents, who they need, whether they like them or not right now, with their friends, with other people at the parish that they don't know yet, with other students at the school, with a certain club or organization, helping them to make connections so they can find where they fit into the world in a much healthier way. So I think those three tiers can be really helpful for us to take practical, proactive, but also reactive steps when we are confronted with youth who have any level of mental health challenge. And I'll go ahead and piggyback off of something I think I heard you say, Ryan, around you know acknowledging in your setting that teachers have their stuff. And stuff gets 
you know, triggered is the word today, but it, it gets stepped on and reopened. And for any of us adults in whatever capacity we have in the life of youth, our stuff is going to get bumped. I say to parents, like it's not if, but when. <laughs> and so if we haven't yet done the work on for ourselves around addressing those wounds, knowing what those wounds are, and children and teenagers, they will help you know what are those vulnerabilities, what are those spots um, that you get really reactive, right? That you look back on an interaction and you go, that that wasn't me. That's not the that's not the Kenna that I know. And those are good indications to to pause and to consider like what is it that's going on for me? You know, in in the clinical world, we call that countertransference, the way in which a client kind of ignites this reaction in me. And it's it's the it's a cause for great reflection from that therapist because without consideration, they could do a lot of harm, right? It it impacts the way we react to our client. So similarly, for all of us adults in relationship with youth, we can have that counter-transferal experience. And if we don't allow that to be information, if we shove that down or dismiss it or um, pardon ourselves for our poor behavior, we miss a really valuable opportunity to, to do some of our own work, to probably gain some of our own skills around managing our emotions and not letting our emotions run us. I think one of the the most helpful resources that I've found in regard to this is Dan Siegel's book, Parenting from the Inside Out. And maybe an indication of how valuable it is that the first time I read it, I got to the end of the first chapter and it's reflection questions. And I was like, no, that's too hard. And I closed it, <laughs> put it away. I was like, that's way too challenging. <laughs> and so maybe a testament to, you know, just how probing that book is, but it was so convicting. And it was like holding up a mirror to myself of, you know, what can often make it difficult for us as adults to get close to, to have intimacy with someone, a youth going through difficulties in mental health is the discomfort it stirs in us. And so the more we can do to heal that, to, to shine light on those dark places in our life, I think the more equipped we're going to be to sit with that discomfort and to be of great value to them. And I think that discomfort actually factors into those three tiers again as well, because I think all of us who work in ministry, God willing, we have a heart for the young people that we serve and we love them and we only want what's best for them. So there can be this temptation, this reflex inside me if a young person comes to me and they are genuinely suffering every day with maybe even persistent, significant mental illness that there is no cure for in this life per se, that I can feel the need to just do whatever it takes to fix them, to fix their problem. and. The, the reality of it is that they have a savior and it's not me and I have a part to play, but I will never be able to save this young person from every form of suffering in their lives. And it doesn't mean that I can do nothing or that I ought to do nothing. What it means is that I may have to reconcile my own suffering, which is watching someone suffer in a way that I can't fix or alleviate completely. So how can I care for this person? How can I create systems and structures to help them thrive and still know that it may not be enough, at least this week or this year, or even in the time that I know them and I'm able to care for them, that I can do the best that I can and just hold their well-being and their future in a place of hope for me as well. 
That's a really powerful takeaway that I think all of us, I hope we can sit with it and reflect with it because it's such a place of pain and challenge to be in when we can't totally eliminate and fix and problem solve a person's suffering. It doesn't mean we can't do anything. As you said, we accompany, we help create connections and identify systems of care, but we at once walk with another in what could be a, a chronic mental illness or persistent suffering. Friends, we have had some great questions come in over the live Q&A, so thank you so much to those who posed those questions. And I'd like to um, raise one of the first questions that came forth, which circles around a theme that you brought up, Pat and Kenna. You talked about the importance of fostering connection, helping connect young people, particularly those who are experiencing what you described as kind of a level two mental health crisis. But it's relevant across experiences for a young person. And there was one comment that came in that said, we're noticing decreased stigma among young people where they're more able to recognize that they have mental health challenges and they even speak about it. But there's still this fear or reticency in really seeking help. So this particular scenario that someone mentioned was in their work with students and they said, I walk with these students who have a friend or a roommate if they're in college who's struggling and that friend will not seek help. And so this young person becomes kind of the one who feels like they're bearing it. They're that person's one confident, confidant. And so the young person then is struggling of like, how do I support this friend of mine? But they just seem unwilling to seek out help. And so there's a burdensome to that. And so I'm curious about what advice you might offer for a minister or a teacher who's walking with a young person in this scenario? I mean, I, I can start just to get the conversation going. One thing I've always said to our students is that I've tried to, in terms of creating a culture where they're open to talk about this, is, you know, it's it can be sometimes very intimidating to go vertical to an adult. Um, sometimes it is a lot easier to speak sort of on a horizontal plane with your peers. And so if you're the friend who is, knows your roommate or whoever is struggling, you know, just continuing to assure them in, in, in a way that's sort of non-threatening, I, I would suppose, that, that you're there for them if they need to talk or if, if they ever feel like, hey, it's, it's okay to talk about these things. If, you know, talk to me or maybe you, maybe you know someone who has a similar experience and you can kind of do an introduction sort of on that horizontal level so that it's not as threatening as going to like an adult or someone in authority um, because they're just afraid of whatever. So I think kind of the way that you can work sort of on maybe a, a peer level and try to finesse those relationships could be a starting place that I talk to our high school kids about a lot. Like if you're afraid to go talk to an adult, talk to a friend. And then a lot of times that friend will be like, no, you should definitely talk to an adult. Right. And then, but now there's two people going to the adult instead of one. And that's easier for students. I love that, Ryan. I was Thinking too, you were talking of when we work with high schoolers, you know, schools will have us come in and speak to especially freshmen, sophomores, you know, as they're getting acclimated to this new big world. We talk a lot about boundaries and a lot around this very fact of kind of preemptively releasing them from the duty of, of carrying this burden of safeguarding a friend, right? A friend who's cutting, a friend who's maybe involved in an abusive relationship. 
I think that's a message that we as ministers could give to others because particularly in a Christian context, it's a little confusing of like, am I actually being a good friend if I release myself of kind of over-functioning and being resp- holding myself responsible for the safety, the care of, you know, this student. So that's one piece of it. Um, definitely, you know, boundaries and discussing very explicitly then what that school's policies are um, around safe spaces. Um, one of the challenges that we'll give to students as we're wrapping up, we kind of send them with some call to action items, but one of them is to identify an adult that they feel like would be a safe person, that they would be comfortable with, that they would trust that whatever action that adult takes, whether it's on their behalf or on behalf of, you know, a friend who's confided, that they could really surrender it to that adult and trust in their judgment and in their training or in their role. So kind of those two things. But I think that message of boundaries, our youth need to hear that because again, with technology, there's a lot going on, a lot of conversations going on that we adults don't have any knowledge of. I think it might be helpful sometimes to to hand young people maybe a couple of like instruments in their toolbox kind of to simplify or to like lower the barrier of some of these conversations later on. Because a lot of times uh, a young person won't even know where to begin a conversation with their roommate or their friend who is in a dangerous relationship or something like that. So giving young people terminology like, you know, if you start the conversation with, I really care about you. And because I care about you, fill in the blank, whatever the thing is. I I think you should see a counselor. I think you should talk to a priest. I think you should go see the campus minister, whatever the case may be. Because I think the fear a lot of times is that if I come to someone that I care about, it's going to come off as confrontational, judgmental, shaming. And the reality is that any good friend has none of those intentions. So the way to to get away from them being perceived that way is to really over-clarify, I care about you. I just want what's best for you. I'm not mad at you. I'm, I don't think that you're a bad person. I care about you and I want you to be healthy. So how can I help you be healthy? Um, and maybe even helping young people get away from what, you know some of the boundaries that Kendall was talking about. There was a young person I, I worked with years ago who had a friend disclosed to him at school that she was struggling with a really significant eating disorder. And she made him swear that he wouldn't tell anyone. And he did because he was kind of in the conversation with her. He promised he wouldn't tell anyone, but he was really concerned about that. He didn't think that was the best approach. And so he agonized for a few days and he finally came to this rock bottom of like, all right, I know that if I tell someone, I may lose her as a friend forever but I would rather her be alive and healthy and not my friend than to think that I am a friend and continue doing harm to herself through no fault of her own, even just through her own kind of mental illness that she's dealing with. So he told uh, a guidance counselor, she was livid, didn't talk to him for six months. And then after the care that she received, she came back to him and apologized and said, I'm so grateful you did exactly what I needed. I wasn't myself back then. So giving people permission to just be uncomfortable in getting people the help that they need, connecting them to a helpful resource, I think is really valuable. Thanks for that. Yeah, that's in a way a powerful narrative, personal yeah, narrative. Now that takes us to a question that's a basic question about resources. So one of our listeners shared that in their area, there's a real shortage of therapists for children and adolescents that's statewide. 
And she said, the schools, they tend to be very focused on academics and on achievement. And there's a dark and light side to that. But as a result, the kids are overworked, overtired, and they're coping without connection. So she asks, are there programs that you recommend for school systems that could bridge some of the gaps in this care? And I would follow that with another question from a listener of just, again, echoing, it's very hard to identify therapists, like it's a hard system to navigate. So what advice do you have to offer for folks who are feeling like they're hitting a lot of bumps in the road on identifying good therapists? Well, I think that in representation of the Catholic Psychotherapy Association, we launched our directory about six months ago. Very easy to navigate. You can search by zip code and state and region. So we are divided according to the CARA regions in the United States. And so that would be a helpful resource. You can also search by clinical expertise or specialties. CatholicTherapist.com is also another one. And of course, Psychology Today, which you can also search by insurance um, specialties. One of the things that I tell clients um, is that it took me five dentists to find one that I like, and that's just my teeth. You know, when you're entrusting your psyche to someone, you deserve to be picky. And so if it takes a couple of tries, that is part of the game that it, unfortunately, you know, you, it takes a little bit to find a good match. And all, you always have a right to say, this is not a good match for me. And empowering clients to do that, I think, goes a long way. Another resource, which is actually came out of the pandemic, is the Pact. And so psychologists, so this doesn't apply to master level clinicians, only to doctoral level clinicians. Psychologists across a variety of states have signed an agreement to allow for the transfer of licensure. And so if you are a psychologist in one of these states, you can actually see clients across state lines. And so that also opens up kind of resources in other states. But again, this is only for doctoral level psychologists. Maribel, thanks so much for that. So just to reiterate, and I see we shared over the uh, Zoom chat, the Catholic Psychotherapy Association directory is a good resource. CatholicTherapist.com is another search engine. Psychology Today is a general search for therapists in your area. PsyPact, P-S-Y-P-A-C-T, is an arrangement that allows for psychologists to practice across state lines. Thank you for that. Yeah. Henna. Yeah, I might just pick up on the, you know, programs for school systems that can bridge these gaps in care. That is something that we have been attending to at the Martin Center for Integration because the reality is Catholic schools are under-resourced in many ways. And mental health can be one of those. And it's become you know, glaringly obvious that there is this gap oftentimes. And so there are you know, different ways we've come in and supported faculty, trained, you know, the teachers and the administrators, left them with different lessons on social emotional learning and skills. The other thing I would highly recommend is kind of related to a lot of things we've discussed, dialectical behavioral therapy, the skills that come out of that would be an excellent thing to integrate into a school's curriculum. There are different you know, programs out there that you can buy. Certainly the administration want to vet out you know, which program they would use. But as a body of skills and information, that would be a great place for an under-resourced school to start. And it's often some of the foundational skills that we give when we go into a school or a diocese. 
and try to start bringing them up to snuff on their mental health care. Uh, thank you for that. And we had another question come in that we won't have time to address in full, but it was remarking on some of that just seriousness of symptoms that this person was seeing among young people in her ministry role. And she was noting that she had a few young folks with a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder. And borderline is a um, diagnosis, if folks aren't familiar with it, it just involves a lot of mood variation or highs and lows. And it can be really hard then in terms of the stress it places on one's relationships and the therapy that you name, Kenna, dialectical behavioral therapy, it's a skill set that's used very much in therapy for those with diagnosis of borderline. And it's a training that's great for parents, for educators, for others. So I'm glad that you named that as a resource. That could be something to look into. And just, yeah, thinking broadly, how do we increase the education and conscientiousness among the schools? And we have two wonderful consulting organizations here with us now in terms of the Martin Center for Integration, Corsacrum Counseling and Consulting, and then our own FIAT program will continue to work to provide resources for educators and for ministers in the area of mental health. So friends, with that, I regret that we don't have more time to address the wonderful questions that have come over through the Q&A, but thank you for your engagement with us today. Thank you again to our panelists. It's been a real gift to learn from you all and to reflect together. And just a final note, our Conversations That Matter series will begin anew in the spring. So if you're interested, please stay tuned for upcoming webinars through Conversations That Matter. And you should all receive an email, which will invite your feedback on our webinar today. We'd really appreciate if you could take a few moments to complete that survey. Continuing education credits are available for those who've tuned in for the full webinar in the live version. Um, and we do ask that you complete the survey in order to receive those CEU credits. And finally, a webinar recording will be sent out tomorrow. So thank you all and God bless.